Morning. Morning. Cuddly jumper season is upon us. It's great. Mark knows it. Rachel knows it. Kumbalani. Kumbalani knows it. Cordea knows it. Paul. What happened? T-shirt. Dude. Freezing out there. <laughs> Let's pray. It's on. Am I on? Yeah, good. Let's pray. Lord God, what a privilege it is to come together in relative freedom to seek your word, seek your face, and to learn of you together. As we open your word, we ask that you speak into our hearts and our minds, that you shine your light so that we understand what you're saying to us today. Amen. Right. Drivers, you know how when you're joining the motorway, one of the things you need to do as you come down the slip road is to get up to the same speed as the rest of the traffic. If you cast your mind back to when you were learning to drive um, on the motorway, that's one of the scariest and hardest things to do. Once you're on the motorway, you can kind of settle into the flow of traffic and relax. So that's what I'm going to take a few minutes to do first to get us back up to speed. We're in Titus 2. And when we looked at Titus 2 last month, we covered verses 1 to 3. And given that we've only covered three verses, you might think, hey Rob, you weren't really going that fast, were you? Well, okay, maybe not that fast, but we still need to pootle down the slip road and get to a sufficient pace that we can get into the rest of chapter 2. So, are you ready? Start your engines. Titus 2. The mathematically astute among us will deduce that Titus 2 comes after Titus 1. Okay, clever clogs. Um, the whole book of Titus is uh, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to his colleague Titus. And Titus has been stationed on the island of Crete and he's charged with looking after the new churches there. We've been going through appraisal season at work recently and when I reread chapter 1, I felt like I came to it with new eyes. In chapter 1, Paul's reminding Titus of the reason he's in Crete, the work he's got to do, his objectives, if you will, which is to appoint elders in the churches and make sure they remain faithful to the gospel. And in my mind's eye, I can sort of see Paul's quill hovering over the page, ready to grade Titus. Um, For his last objectives, did he meet expectations, exceed expectations, significantly exceed expectations, or, oh dear me, fail to meet expectations? How many elders has he appointed? I'm jesting. I'm sure it's not like that at all. Um, Anyway, Paul's reminded us, he's reminded Titus of his role, and he's pointed out there's still a lot of work to do, particularly because some troublemakers on the island are trying to bring people back under legalism. And Paul says that those mischief makers profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's chapter 1, verse 16. Stern words indeed. Okay, good. So we're approaching 50 miles an hour now. Does it feel like 50 miles an hour? No? It's very quiet this morning. Need to get up, just up to 70, so keep your foot on the accelerator. Chapter 2. And remember that the chapter breaks 
They're a little artificial. They're put in there to help us navigate our way through the Bible. They're not there because Paul put them there. So at the start of chapter 2, Paul tells Titus to keep his teaching solid. That's verse 1, and it fits well with the tail end of chapter 1. And then you've got these two verses that go hand in hand. One of them is addressed to older men, and the other is addressed to older women. And these two verses are separated by the word likewise, which pretty much means that gender isn't the issue here. We're all expected to meet the standards that Paul's laying out. And you might remember that I described this chapter as like taking our spiritual pulse. In verses 2 and 3, there's a list of things we should and shouldn't be doing, attributes that we should have, and that's not intended to give us a new set of rules to live by. No, we're just taking our pulse. We're using these guidelines as a measuring stick so we can see whether or not we're where we ought to be. Does that make sense? Okay. And so you've got these criteria, the attributes that you might expect of a mature, godly Christian. He or she is sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love and steadfastness, reverent in behaviour, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine, teaching what is good. Right, so we're up to 70 miles an hour. Time for a lane change. I feel like my heart's racing on the slip road. So, um, I'm looking at 4 and 5. Um, I'm going to start from the end of verse 3 because it, 4 starts halfway through a sentence. So they, that's older women, are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Now what Paul is teaching here is way off grid from what we know in our culture in the world. The compass points are completely different. In fact, we're not even using the same compass. So firstly, I'm going to chop this verse up. I'm going to the bit that says, be submissive to their own husbands. But before we get to that, just pop back to Genesis, if you will, and find chapter 3. Where Eve disobeys God when she takes the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 16 God speaks to Eve about the consequence that affects all women after her in the second half of verse 16. And God says to her, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that word desire in the Hebrew is a word very rarely found in the Old Testament. And it's exactly the same word that's used a little bit later in chapter 4, verse 7, when God is speaking to Cain, just before Cain murders his brother Abel. And God says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, there's the word, is for you, but you must rule over it. So sin is pictured like a wild beast 
seeking to devour Cain. So speaking to Eve, using that same word, that desire shall be for your husband. It's not a good kind of desire. And the marriage relationship is damaged and distorted by sin as a result of the fall. And there is an ongoing struggle for leadership within the marriage from that point. Now, we see this in our society. We have expressions in this country like, who wears the trousers? Uh, We see this in a lot of our humour. Next weekend, my brother is getting married, and yesterday we were in a store, and I just perused the wedding gifts, and they were all really unsuitable. Um, They had pairs of mugs. One said, I do, and the other one, I do as I'm told. There was another pair of mugs that were worse. One says, the boss. The other one says, the real boss. So, what Paul is seeking to re-establish is the right relationship between man and woman. And we see this also in Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 24, and I'm just going to zip in and zip out of there. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. We find the similar language about being submissive to our husbands in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 6. Now, that is an absolute treasure of a passage. If you're a woman, I'm going to just put you a signpost there now. There isn't time for me to look at it, but it's beautiful, especially in the Amplified Version. I find it helpful to think of this as such, that when God made Adam and Eve, he could have taken one pile of dust here and made Adam, and one pile of dust here and made Eve. He didn't do it that way. He took a pile of dust and he made Adam and then he took from Adam's bone and Adam's flesh and created woman. And there's a right order. Imagine the freedom and the harmony that existed in Adam and Eve's relationship before the fall. It must have been beautiful. And that's what Paul is teaching for us as women. Yes, we're still dealing with sin, but as we're born again, we're operating from a different compass to the world. Another way in which we've got a different compass altogether is that largely, and I'm covering this really quickly, I know, we live in an egocentric culture that puts me at the middle, at the centre. So it's all about me and what I want. It's about my family, my career, my personal fulfilment, my rights, my reputation. We live in a culture that's got it all upside down but thinks it's the right way up. In the kingdom, 
Who is at the centre? The King. The King is at the centre. And our lives are all about serving the King. So everything we are as women, everything we do is for him. And how we do our 24-7 stuff, how we react to one another in our families, it's all about him at the centre. He is the reason that we serve our families. We sang before, so let us learn how to serve and in our lives enthrone him. Each other's needs to prefer for it is Christ we're serving. So going back to um, Titus 4, verse 4, Paul writes, train the younger women to love their husbands and children. And what strikes me is if we need training to love them, then what is that love? That's not the giddy romance we feel when we first fall in love with someone. We don't need any training to feel that, do we? Another signpost is 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm just going to pick out two little bits from there. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. I'm just going to stop there. That's plenty, isn't it? That would take me a whole lifetime. (laughs) Not to insist on my own way. For those that know me. (laughs) Not to be irritable. You know, we all get irritated with one another, especially in our families where we're with each other all the time. But when we feel irritable, and we feel like shouting or slamming the door or you might be the other end of the section where it's more moody, silent, not talking. However it is played out in your character, when we feel irritable, as we mature in Christ, we're to respond not from how we feel, but learn to have the fruit of the Spirit in operation, to learn self-control, to learn kindness not to live first and foremost by those strong feelings, but as we grow, to live from a new place. This passage talks about purity. Women are to be pure. For me, I always think of purity, holiness, integrity. Those three together. So what we say on a Sunday morning what we sing on a Sunday morning, as we mature, it should tally up more and more closely with how we live in the 24-7. How we conduct ourselves at home, in our families. Now, I'm not saying this lightly. I've been looking at this passage for the last few weeks. I felt so convicted about so many things. So, you know, the fingers are pointing at me here as well as at you. But if it sounds heavy, then there's good news. Because we cannot be perfect. We do not need to try harder 
We can't make ourselves pure. Only one person can do that, and that is Jesus. And we need more and more of him in our lives. How do we get that? There's a few ways. Worship, fellowship, quality fellowship, best one of all, the Word of God. Reading the Word of God for ourselves. Having the Holy Spirit bring it to life and changing our hearts. Now, as women, there are different ways that that could look in our lives. We're all, even as women in the room, in very different circumstances. My friend Laura, who's slipped out to do some cooking in the back, she has a commute to work. She's working full-time. But she uses her commute to listen to teaching, good podcasts, get the Word of God into her, and that's where she prays. If you've got prayer requests, tell Laura. She'll pray for it on the way to work. For me, I'm based at home. Um, I have James, my son here, and his twin brother who's at home this morning, Morgan, who's profoundly disabled. And a lot of what I do is very repetitive. doesn't involve much brain. There's a lot of repetitive tasks. So I like to put my earphones in when I'm washing up, whatever I'm doing, listen to the podcast. It's a great combination. It really takes the boredom out of the washing up <laughs> to be listening to God's word. So our lives are not to be centred on ourselves, but on God first. Because, you know what, we're not made to run on empty. We're not. And we can't. You know, it gets hard when the the tank is empty and dry. So we need the Holy Spirit, we need God's Word to be replenishing, refreshing us, helping us so that we are equipped to serve. Another signpost, well, just, I can't even, I haven't even got time to go there, but it's just a beautiful passage for women. I'm sure many of you know where I'm going. Proverbs 31, verse 10 to 31. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Just sit and read that. It speaks for itself. But what I'm mentioning that for is because you see a whole breadth of how womanhood is expressed there. You know, the, the woman in Proverbs, described in Proverbs 31 is She's physically strong. She's catering for the family. She's a shrewd businesswoman. There isn't a one sort of stereotypical image. So I'm just trying to say that although Paul says women are to be working at home, he doesn't say thou shalt only work at home. There is breadth in scripture about the role that women play. But also Paul is saying there is a right place. There's a right order. I think I've covered most of it, just briefly. Um, I just want to read from the Amplified. There's this beautiful translation for for this verse. Um, Women are to be makers of a home where God is honoured. Makers of a home where God is honoured. That's beautiful, isn't it? So just to zoom out then, and go to the end of the verse, Why does it matter how we behave? Because it's not about our reputation. It's about the reputation of the gospel. And Paul is saying he doesn't want how we live to 
cause the gospel to be criticised, to be abused. Uh, J.B. Phillips translates that, be a good advertisement for the Christian faith. I like that one. The 19th century evangelist Gypsy Smith, I'm sure you know this quote well, says there are five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and the Christian. But most people never read the first four. Most people's experience, this is not his quote, this is me just adding to that, most people's experience of the gospel in the world, it's you and me. Okay, so that's verses three and a bit to five. And um, we now hit verse six, which is addressed to young men, and it's a very short verse. Uh, Titus 2, verse six. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So Paul's saying, you get the idea. Self-controlled, living honourable lives as befits the children of the King of Heaven. Whether you're young, old, male, female, being a child of God, being an adopted brother of Jesus Christ, it comes with responsibilities. Blessings, grace, yes, and responsibilities too. You know, James, who was the brother of Jesus, he wrote a book, it's in our New Testament. James says something along these lines, if you've not changed, then it's no gospel. If you've not changed, it's no gospel. So James 1 verse 22 says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you hear the good news, about Jesus, and you think, oh yes, that's very good, I'll have some of that, Jesus, he's a fellow for me, but your life doesn't change. Well, it doesn't look to me, and it doesn't look to James, like you're a Christian, like you're saved. Don't be deceived. If the Holy Spirit is living in you, if you've submitted yourself to the Lordship of Christ, you will be changed for the better, very much for the better. And this will be shown in your life, in your works, in what you do, in how you talk. I know it's not always easy to self-evaluate, by the way, and many people, me included, look at their lives and think, oh, I'm not a very good Christian. Maybe I'm not saved after all. So a little bit of advice for all of us like that. Why not speak to the people who knew you both before and after you became a Christian and see if they think you've changed? I think we'll be pleasantly surprised. Unless they hate Christians, or God, of course, in which case, brace yourself for a mouthful. But it's the same difference. You've changed. The Holy Spirit is living in you. And then come back to, chapter, uh, to Titus 2 and check yourself against the first half of the chapter. Does this read more true about me than it did a month, a year, ten years ago? And bear in mind that as we love Jesus more and we learn more of him, and as his light exposes and reveals more of our dark places, bear in mind that we may feel like we've lost ground. But no, this is just the loving discipline of God. He wants those dark places to be revealed and changed because he loves us. Okay, so in verse 7, Paul turns his attention back to Titus. As we look at these two verses, it'd be 
sort of a little bit easy to switch off because he's talking to Titus and we're not all in Titus's situation, verses 7 and 8. But let's apply them to ourselves anyway because Titus, after all, he was just a man with responsibilities, with people who were under his care, people he looked after. And that's more or less all of us anyway, isn't it? If not now, then soon enough. So Paul says, Titus 2, 7 to 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Wow. Are we models of good works? Do we share posts on social media that are nasty, gossip, or posts that promote the self rather than God? Are we models of good works? Do we speak kindly to people at all times? Are we truthful? Do we do what we say we will do? Do we honour our commitments? Now this is taking the standards up a notch, isn't it? In our teaching, showing integrity. And I think this is particularly hard for preachers. How can I, in all good conscience, stand here and tell other people what their lives ought to look like when my own life is a dirty mess of sin? How can we? I tell you, it's a a real challenge, preparing sermons. A real battle. Because it puts my own heart, my own flesh, under a microscope. Am I a model of good works? Oh dear. Now, I know that you're kind people, and you forgive my shortcomings, but let me make it clear. I am by no means a perfect follower of Christ. I am by no means even a great follower of Christ. And that's what I have to tell you. So to preach this with any sort of integrity, I have to tell you, no matter how bad you think your words are, your thoughts are, I've almost certainly done it, or thought it, or worse. You know, integrity demands we preachers do not, absolutely not, pretend to be something we're not. So you won't see any halo here fell off a long time ago. I don't know the Westminster Catechism. It's been a long time since I helped anyone pray the believer's prayer. I'm just a man hoping, and by hoping I mean believing, that the Holy Spirit will continue his work in my life, in your lives. We're all men and women who need a saviour and who need a Lord. Someone to follow. Someone to obey. And why is it so important that we preachers are truthful and honest? Paul says, verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Heaven forbid that people might be viewing us as self-righteous hypocrites. Please God, may I not be another person pretending on stage, pretending off stage, to have a holy life outside of here, carrying on an affair, or cheating my employer, or beating my wife or children, or speaking or writing hatefully about anyone, whether they Trump, Nigel Farage, or any other person made in the image of God. It's not my place. 
Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him the right to say, you little hypocrite. And if you've given him that right, I, mean, I, I should say when we have, because we all sin, all of us, just be quick to repent. Don't cover it up, because we're only fooling ourselves. We're certainly not fooling God, and we're certainly not fooling the people around us who are constantly watching to see how we live, what our attitudes are like, whether this Jesus of Nazareth can really make a difference. So let me just quickly remind you of 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a pretty simple transaction, isn't it? And we win! We win! Confess, and he forgives. He makes us clean. You're clean! Do you believe it? Do you? Okay, verse 9. Bond servants. Bond servants? What's a bond servant? And does this verse have any relevance for us today? A bond servant, that's a tricky word in the Greek. Doulos. Got any first century Greek speakers here? No? I'm going to go with doulos then. Doulos. It appears in the New Testament a bit, and its translation usually depends on the context. It's a word that has at times been translated slave, and that's not particularly helpful to us because we have a particular view of what it means to be a slave. So to us, a slave is someone who's held captive and forced to work with no right to own anything, no right to be paid, no rights at all. That's not quite what doulos means here. So we see the word being translated bond servant. But that's tricky too, because we don't have bond servants, do we? Do you have bond servants? Is that a thing in Cheshire? No. So a bond servant could be a, a bit like what we today call a slave, but in the way Paul's talking about it, we can see there's a key difference. You know, there's an aspect in which being a bond servant is voluntary. Helpfully, if we look back at chapter 1, uh, Paul's used the same word, doulos, and he's talking about himself. In Titus 1, verse 1, he calls himself <clears throat> Paul, a servant, a doulos of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So a bond servant of God, a person who's voluntarily chosen to submit to the absolute authority of a new master, almighty God, acknowledging that there is a debt <clears throat> that not even a thousand lifetimes could repay. And this is the kind of thing that happens sometimes with bond servants. So someone who's previously free would enter into a bond servant relationship to someone who they owed money. And then working as required, they'd eventually repay the debt and be free. It's just an interesting solution for poverty. That's not the only kind of bond servant, but I think it's the kind that Paul's talking about in this passage. So Titus 2 verses 9 and 10, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. That's pretty radical, right? You're in this relationship where your responsibility is to do work for someone else. And what does Paul say the attitude should be? To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Pilfering. Pilfering, that's a great word, isn't it? Pilfering. 
showing all good faith. So we may not have bond servants today, not even in Cheshire, but we do have something similar, don't we? Employment. You know, I voluntarily give my time to my employer in return for money, and in this relationship, my employer has the right to tell me what I should do, and I have the responsibility to do it. So it's not a stretch, is it, to apply Paul's criteria here. As a Christian, as as Christians, shouldn't we be well-pleasing employees? Shouldn't we? Or should we make our bosses' lives miserable? Now, Jesus was trained as a carpenter, wasn't he? Do you think that he made mediocre tables? Or great tables? If Jesus hung a door on a frame, do you think it would fall off after a week? Or be the last thing standing if a bomb exploded and the whole thing fell over? We should be well-pleasing employees, doing our work to the best of our abilities, not argumentative, a delight to have around, not stealing things and justifying it to ourselves. Anybody read the Dilbert cartoons? Hmm? I love Dilbert. It's a really insightful, comic parody of modern office life. I make no comment here for the recording or otherwise whether Dilbert may or may not resemble my own office. Anyway, one of the Dilbert books is entitled Build a Better Life by Stealing Office Supplies. Don't do that. Receive your due and leave it at that. And why? So our reason is at the end of verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. So that in all we do, in our work, we are demonstrating how wonderful it is to be a Christian, to be loved by God, to do things His way. Adorn the doctrine of God, our Saviour. It's a wonderful expression and challenging, isn't it? Does your life adorn the Gospel? The Amplified Bible puts it this way, so that in every respect they will adorn and do credit to the teaching of God, our Saviour. Let's be a credit to our Heavenly Father. Don't we owe Him that? as long as we remember that we do it in his power, not our own. It's easy, really, when you think about it. We just need to give up the struggle to be the one on top, demanding our rights, and instead, relax into God's way, letting the light of his gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit change us, make us more like Jesus. Let's be a credit to Christ our Saviour. Amen.